So, in the spirit of Jack's uh, meditation, the Big Sky meditation this morning, I want to continue on a theme of openness and wonder and delight in in ourselves and the world, spaciousness. Um, and I'll start with a poem by Hafiz. He says. O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? (laughs) And maybe you're experiencing a little bit of that place where you, you, you do smile and you walk outside and you're just in a kind of stunned awe at the beauty and, and the mystery of it all and it's wordless and, and it uh, permeates your whole being. It's a really sweet place. Usually, you know, we come and we confront the world and we project all of our desires and needs onto it. Or we just treat it, sort of take it all for granted and uh, treat it as ordinary and uh, you know, and, and usually our hearts are somewhat closed, and our minds are you know in another county, and we don't really see the wonder and uh, the beauty of what of this incarnation that we're in. It's not always easy to smile. I've struggled with with a kind of negative attitude my whole life. I, I consider myself now a cynic in recovery. <laughs> and uh, the Dharma, I think, has been my salvation. It has taught me how to stop and look closely with beginner's mind uh, as, as a part of the arising of all things rather than separate from it's been a real gift. It keeps pointing me to the mystery. It doesn't give me any answers in particular, but it points me to the mystery, and it's such a beautiful thing. Being in awe and wonder are revolutionary acts. As a part-time advisor to the king, Lao Tzu says, when the people lack a sense of awe, there will be trouble in the empire. That is one reason we should cultivate uh, wonder whenever possible. Learn to drink deeply at the fountain of amazement. We might then become less insistent on rearranging the world. We won't need to consume so much in our endless search for satisfaction. As my friend Joanna Macy said, wonder is an antidote to consumerism. And Rumi said, awe is the salve that will heal our eyes. And Albert Einstein, one cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. So, to uh, arouse your 
holy curiosity, I want to lead you in a little reflection on the mystery of life in the universe. I call this reflection, be here, wow. <laughs> and hopefully it will help bring some energy, curiosity, love into your practice if it's not there already. And I'll start the reflection with the mysteries of the cosmos. As Carl Sagan once said, if you want to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a, the universe. <laughs> I was reading an article in the New Yorker about parallel universes, and some scientist was asked, you know, by, by a, an audience member, uh, I just can't imagine, I can't begin to imagine parallel universes, universe after universe. And the scientist said to the questioner, if you hadn't been born in this universe and you suddenly appeared here, could you have dreamed this up? Could you have imagined this? The cosmologist Brian Swim says, Four billion years ago, the Earth was a cooling blob of lava. Now it can sing opera. On the opening page of my internet search engine, I get the NASA astronomy picture of the day. So, you know, every day I see galaxies being born and great events in in the universe. It's really a wonderful uh, picture to start the day with. It was down when the government was down, and uh, I missed it sorely. (laughs) But I recently saw a picture of a newly discovered galaxy called the Sombrero Galaxy. And as you might imagine, it's shaped like a Mexican hat and contains 600 million suns. Uh, You can read, read statistics like that almost every day in the newspaper. Why aren't we all just falling to our knees and... Uh, staggering 600 million suns was less than 100 years ago we knew of one galaxy in the universe and now the latest estimate is there are 100 to 200 billion of them galaxies not solar systems, galaxies full of suns And the scientists say it all came out of virtually nothing. They said uh, there was a big bang. A number of people asked them, well, if there had been nothing, what banged? <laughs> so they did. They, they, and they went back and reconfigured a bit and decided there had been something after all. There had been a dot. There was a dot. A singularity, they call it, a, a point smaller than an atom. See, I want to write a new creation myth, you know. I mean, that's what we're toying with here, a whole new story. Uh, so my new creation myth would go something like this. In the beginning, there was nothing, and it was good. <laughs> nothing can ever be wrong with nothing, right? Right? In the beginning, there wasn't any space. So there was no place to put anything. And it was good. 
In the beginning, there wasn't any time. Nothing ever got done. Nobody cared. <laughs> but there was this dot, and it exploded in a big bang. It happened 13.7 billion years ago today. Why not? Happy birthday to you, too. So 13.7 billion years ago, this dot explodes, and out of the explosion comes the elementary forces and particles, and they begin, they begin morphing and moving and creating billions of galaxies full of billions of suns and planets and the earth and all the forests and mountains and oceans and people and Zafus and everything you can know of a name... <laughs> Everything you can know of a name, it all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom. Now, is that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? Which is more fantastic? I like this image. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. The whole universe. That's a universe you can get your mind around, you know? <laughs> Take it home, put it in the corner. <laughs> now, one scientist estimates the universe to be 10 billion trillion cubic light years large. Approximately. <laughs> so what's out there? I mean, you know, what's out there in all that space? And it's starting to look very, very probable that there's lots of life out there. The new Kepler Space Telescope has found hundreds of planets in our galaxy alone that could support life. Planets going around their sun in the so-called Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, you know. And, and so it's looking like there could, life could be everywhere out there, most likely. I think that's good news, because it kind of takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> you know, we no longer have to carry that entire burden of meaning in the, in the universe. If we did ever find life in, an, in another galaxy, then we would have to be galaxy, become galaxy-identified. You know, right now we're Earthlings. But if there was life on another galaxy, we would become Milky Wayans <laughs> automatically. The universe... Uh, one thing that's out there they've, di they've just recently discovered is seven, uh, the universe is made of 70% dark energy and 25% dark matter and about 5% the kind of matter and energy we live with here. It's all this mystery out there. You know, we, don't know what's, we don't really know what's going on. I don't, anyway. Maybe, maybe one of you does. Also, that you know, the universe is filled, uh, suffused with the gas helium. Helium is everywhere. So that could mean my voice is actually an octave lower than it sounds to you right now. 
maybe none of us have ever heard our true voices. Okay. I don't want to just tell silly jokes, you know. I really don't. I want, I want to be deep and meaningful. Right now, we are theoretically and, and literally using still the energy created by the Big Bang. That every time you take a step, move your hand, you're using the energy created by that primal explosion. Right now, inside your skull, millions of synapses are firing. We hope. That's the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. It's like we're pieces of the universe wondering about itself, trying to understand, it, understand itself. I think, it's, I think it's really good to remember that it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make you. Some cause for self-esteem there, you know? What a project. So, the astrophysicist talking about other universes. And, you know, in Asian wisdom cultures, their cosmologies have all, always included many, many universes. Much, they have a much vaster picture of, uh, of the universe than we do. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, oh, yes, but bang, bang, bang. <laughs> many bangs. <laughs> The Hindu god Brahma it said that whenever he closes his eyes, a universe is destroyed, and every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. <laughs> I want to read to you a little bit, just talking about you know, the cosmology of, of, of Buddhism. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra, uh, it talks about the Buddha trying to explain how many worlds are known to him. And he begins calculating like this. 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power equals 10 to the 20th power. This calculating goes on for several pages. And near the final summation, it reaches a number 35 digits long. Then it goes on to say that that number squared is an incalculable. An incalculable to the fourth power is a boundless. A boundless to the fourth power is an incomparable. An incomparable to the fourth power is an innumerable. An innumerable to the fourth power is an unaccountable. An unaccountable to the fourth power is an unthinkable. An unthinkable to the fourth power is an immeasurable. An immeasurable to the fourth power is an unspeakable. An unspeakable to the fourth power is an untold, which is unspeakably unspeakable. <laughs> and an untold multiplied by itself is a square untold. That's how many worlds are known to a Buddha. So where are we in the vastness of space in this in 
inconceivable universe. Well, we're all together riding on this one little rock. We're spinning around the Earth's axis at about a thousand miles an hour. We're spinning in our orbit around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. And you don't even have to hold on. Gratitude to gravity, right? Do you know that they've just discovered that the northern hemisphere is actually on the bottom of the Earth? We always thought we were on top. We're actually dangling on the bottom. I thought you should know. Just to be a little more specific, we're on this little planet, this little water planet, circling a small to moderate-sized star we call the Sun, which is located on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy on a spur called the Orion Arm. The Milky Way is in a small cluster of galaxies we call the local group. Local to us. This local group is 10 million light-years across and made up of 40 galaxies. The other large galaxy in our cluster is Andromeda, which is two and a half billion light years away and is twice as big as the Milky Way. In three billion years, Andromeda and the Milky Way will collide and pass through each other. And several billion years later, the black holes at the center of the two galaxies will combine, creating a super black hole. And as you can probably guess, that will suck. <laughs> That's an old joke, you know, and we, I just uh, couldn't resist. Okay. This is Chuangzi. Does heaven turn? Does the earth sit still? Do sun and moon compete for a place to shine? Who masterminds all this? Who pulls the strings? Who, resting inactive, gives the push that makes it go this way? I wonder, is there some mechanism that works it and won't let it stop? I wonder if it just rolls and turns and can't bring itself to a halt. Do the clouds make the rain or does the rain make the clouds? Who puffs them up? Who showers them down? Who, resting inactive, stirs up all this lascivious joy? The winds rise in the north, blowing now west, now east, whirling up to wander on high. Whose breath and exhalations are they? Who, resting inactive, huffs and puffs them about like this? The universe we are in is a real trickster. We are built to perceive it as solid and real, and it does seem that way. And it seems like there's a lot of stuff here, but there's hardly any stuff here at all, because everything we perceive is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. You may remember back in... In high school, uh, your physics teacher, you know, said you take the nucleus of an atom, you blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand, and it'll be a half a mile away. 
there's hardly any matter to matter. Solidity is, a, is a, an illusion. So if, if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. <laughs> I read that if all the matter of all the people on the planet was compressed, we would make up the size of a golf ball. You know they've broken the atom down into subatomic particles now, quarks, leptons, and gluons. Those are the three main subatomic particles. And when you get into that realm where of, of the subatomic world, things are changing so fast. I mean, we talk about a Nietzsche, and we witness a Nietzsche in a, in a very gross way, but down there, things are changing in millionths of a millionth of a second. They, they've made up a new name for that short a, a period of time, an attosecond. And then they started measuring the things that were changing in a billionth of a millionth of a second. And they called that a yoctosecond. And then they started measuring things changing in a billionth of a billionth of a trillionth of a second. I don't know. And they called it a zeptosecond. So you got atto, yocto, and zepto. <laughs> Does that imply anything to you about the nature of subatomic reality? It's a, it's a Marx Brothers routine. It's clear. <laughs> it's clear. And then the strange... Uh, phenomena that physicists began talking about about 40, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, antimatter. They say the universe is filled with antimatter. And at the moment of the Big Bang, just a little bit more matter was created than antimatter. And every time a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. So we're, you know, to have a universe, we had to get a little more matter than antimatter. And uh, I think the discovery of antimatter raises some questions about whoever or whatever created the universe in the first place. Maybe they were somewhat ambivalent. No, particle of matter, particle of antimatter, you know, there'll be so much trouble. More antimatter, uh, but what else is there to do? More matter. I'm sure the creator was like that. And uh, now they're, they're, they've been looking for the theory of everything. You know that for a long time now. And uh, they haven't found it yet, but the current... Well, they have found a, a version that they're using, and the, that's the superstring theory, which says that everything in the universe is composed of these miniature uh, vibrating strings of energy. And the superstring theory also says that there are 11 more dimensions to reality. Um, and that seven of those dimensions didn't 
un, didn't uh, unfold into our universe, which is probably a good thing because we can barely manage four dimensions, you know, height, width, depth, and time. If there were seven more dimensions, just think of how much harder it would be to find your car keys. <laughs> you know, all those extra crevices in reality. When I first read about that, I started to realize that we all live in a particular bubble, a, a particular construction of reality that you know has these four dimensions. Uh, I also had this fantasy: what if width started slipping in on us, you know? And then we could maybe try to push it back out, and but you couldn't push it too far because then height would start to crumble. And it was a weird vision I had. But what's really exciting in physics right now, uh, well, it's, it's been exciting to those of us who are interested in philosophy and the spiritual path. The physicists say that consciousness plays a major role in the creation of reality, which the mystics have been saying for centuries. But the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. One scientist said, when, uh, when we're looking, there are particles. When we're not looking, they're just waves, probability waves. So I'd like us to try a little scientific experiment right here. Everybody, please close your eyes. So there is no reality in the absence of observation. So that should mean the, the whole place has disappeared. Okay, let's check it out. Uh, either reassembled itself or one of you was peeking. <laughs> there is a story, maybe apocryphal, that there's a group of lamas up in the Himalayas holding everything together by paying attention. <laughs> they know we have to all live through the karma of this life, planet Earth. A haiku. No mind, no matter. No matter, Never mind. <laughs> but there's really nothing here at all. I don't want to scare you or anything, but there's really nothing here. Uh, as one physicist put it, matter is gravitationally trapped light. It's all a light show. There is no thingness. I think it's kind of the ultimate irony that in a civilization so thoroughly devoted to materialism, our scientists would discover that matter may not even exist. We would be illusions chasing after illusions. Sokni Rinpoche, he said, you Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything's so real. That's a real problem. The Buddha said, Thus shall you view the world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So, 
we're, we're in our Be Here While reflection, and uh, let's get personal and continue with uh, the fact of our existence itself. It's extremely improbable that you're here in this particular body uh, with this particular brain contemplating the improbability of being here in this particular body with this particular brain. The odds against it are literally astronomical. For instance, the conditions at the Big Bang had to be exactly as they were, just right, or the universe wouldn't have happened like this. The size of a neutron or proton was only, if it was only a fraction of a degree, smaller or larger, if the nuclear force holding atoms together or the electromagnetic force pulling them apart had been a tiny, tiny, tiny bit different, then atoms wouldn't have held together or collapsed and no elements would have been created and then no that means no oxygen or carbon. And then where would we be? We are carbon-based life forms, breathing, oxygen-breathing life forms. It had to be created just the way it was for us to appear just like this. I think, you know, that we should, uh, we should honor the elements. I mean... They may be phantoms, but they seem to be what we were, we're constructed out of. So you could chant with me. We, would, we could chant the table of basic elements together, bring a kind of spirituality into it. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's, it's got kind of a mantra quality, doesn't it? M's and ons. The planet Earth had to be exactly in relationship to the sun that it is for us to appear on this planet the way we appear. Uh, if the Earth were a little closer to our sun, just not that much closer, maybe a few thousand miles even, life may have been different, a little bit um, Closer, and we may be all, you know, at the poles, and uh, or living underground or something. It'd be way too hot. We were a little further away. We might all be huddled around the equator, or we'd all be like woolly mammoths. We would never would have lost our fur, or we would have had to figure out some other way and means of surviving uh, as beings on this planet. Scientists uh, are amazed that the Earth has maintained a steady oxygen-rich atmosphere for most of the last three billion years. We have about a 21% uh, oxygen content in the atmosphere. A little more oxygen and everything would burn up. A little less and compact, complex beings like us would not have evolved. We wouldn't, there wouldn't be enough energy available. James Lovelock, the man who created the Gaia hypothesis that the, the Earth is one organism. He says, The climate and chemical properties of the Earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life. For this to have happened by chance is as unlikely as to survive a drive through rush hour traffic blindfolded. Very, very improbable. And when you get to, down to the cellular level and start talking about uh, you know, the construction of cells and the complexity of them. It's just, it's, uh, 
it's phenomenal. And, and the people who do it, it just can't believe that it sort of happened. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. As I think I told you a couple nights ago, the Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. So, uh, let's go into our bodies a little bit and just check out the wonder that is here. Just look at your hand for a minute. The five-digit design of this hand goes back 370 million years. The first land vertebrate had five digits on the ends of their of their limbs. Now you can take a piece of cloth and hold it and move it around through your fingers, or take or unbutton a button. You hardly have to think about doing it. There's so much. There's so much of the brain that's that's. Uh, controls the movement of the hands and fingers because they're, they're so important to us in our survival. A couple million years ago, our ancestors' hands could barely manipulate rocks and sticks and hammers, and now some can type 200 words and play the piano and build rockets and computers. They deserve a round of applause, don't you think? If you and you can move your wrists around in circles, by the way, by almost 360 degrees, and your also your shoulders, and that's because for millions of years we were swinging through the trees. Our ancestors were braciating, and that's what uh, the result was: a great flexibility in our in our hands and in our arms. Standing up was also a big moment in in our evolution. It's associated with a rapid increase in brain size when we, when we first uh, came down from the trees and started standing up. At the same time, our brain size exploded. Now, you would think that standing up would cause our feet to swell instead, but, <laughs> but the theory is that standing up left our arms and hands free to work with tools, and it, that required more uh, brain connections to manipulate the... Uh, fingers and hands and and standing up also left our arms free to carry our stuff around and that was important uh, and uh, eventually we started leaving Africa wandering around the around the earth nobody knows exactly why we left but I think it was to look for Chinese food at the time our brains were half the size they are today or else we would have figured out how to send out for Chinese food. <laughs> and then, you know, we wandered around the planet, and we, we probably got caught in an ice age or two, which may have been another reason why our brains kept growing and got bigger and bigger. We had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. It would have been simpler to just grow a heavier coat of fur, but we didn't think of it at the time. Uh, so we figured out how to make fire and began sitting around it and telling stories about ourselves like this one, this evolution story. Okay, wonder. Uh, come to our senses just for a moment for wonder. Uh, Darwin 
says, nature has evolved organs of extreme perfection and complication, which justly excite our admiration. For a few moments, listen to the sounds that you're hearing around you, just kind of my voice. And Do you know that there is no sound in the outside world? That it's all happening in your head? That the air is vibrating and hitting the drum of your ear, which then moves three little bones that also excite a little pool of liquid, which then transfers into uh, these hairs that send electrical signals to the audio, audio center of the brain. It's like a Rube Goldberg device. And that's where you hear the sound. That's where all the sound is created. I'm just, you know, I'm just flapping my lips and my tongue and it's creating these waves and it's going out there and, uh, and you're creating the sound of my voice. And you create the symphony when you listen to uh, that one wave that comes through your radio. That one wave, it's just one wave that hits the drum of the ear and you hear all the different parts and you, 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 you turn it into music. And meaning, you can down, you know, download into your ear uh, sounds that turn into meaning. You hardly have to lift a finger. Look around you, your eyes. The greatest painter who ever lived. Ever-changing three-dimensional art created by you. Uh, you know there's no color in the outside world. That the uh, pixels in your eye, the uh, your brain adds the pigments uh, and hues to phot- the photons. And also what you see is not the original. Right now, streams of photons are being projected onto the screen of your, your retina, which contains over 100 million receptors, which turn beams, these beams of photons into electrical signals, which go back to the visual uh, cortex of the brain. There's no picture sent back there. It's signals, electrical signals. And then the brain goes into this like conference call. And it talks about you know, what, what is being seen and what is needed by you. And the brain recreates the picture and feeds it back to you moment after moment, everything you need to know or everything you need to see, it is, it is creating. Remember, the eye is just a small piece of flesh built of sugars, fats, waters, and a little protein, yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. Darwin wrote, To suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So your mind and your senses are the true creators of this sound and light show. Alfred North Whitehead wrote, The various qualities of the world we are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves. 
The rose gets credit for its scent, the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. But the poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. All your dreams of being an artist are fulfilled. You don't need art school or take piano lessons. Your senses are, are taken care of. It. And I talked last uh, two days ago about the brain, you know, and how, what a self-organizing system it is. And uh, uh, the, some of the statistics... Brain, the brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. That's estimate. Uh, sifts through this information across a network of trillions of possible cell connections and then c- contributes to the construction of your moment-to-moment reality, all for the sake of your survival and enjoyment. So, the workings of our organs and our senses and our limbs, our bodies, complex, amazing, amazing incarnation. So, what is life? We don't know, but we found a molecule. We found a molecule that seems essential. DNA, remember the acronym I, I want you to follow every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance, right? Are you, are you with me on that still? Lily Tomlin said they had DNA on, on, another, on other planets, but they spell it differently. Now, we are related uh, to all the beings that live because uh, we all share DNA. Uh, That's a common ingredient in in all of our lives. But we share nearly 99.9, we share 99.99999% of our DNA with each other. Uh, The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining the Dalai Lama and House Speaker John Boehner and uh, <laughs> Oprah and Britney Spears. And it, most of the information goes into building and maintaining a basic mammal. That is, it takes a huge amount of information. You've got to build a nervous system and a respiratory system and a circulatory system and, a, and instincts and senses and uh, you know, and it, it takes a lot of information. So our individual differences are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. As you probably know, we share over 98% of our DNA with great apes, nearly 90% with mice. That's because, again, most of the information it goes to building a basic mammal, sharing nearly 70% of our DNA with worms, 50% with yeast. <laughs> so if we declare ourselves divine, do we, what about the slime? Where do we draw the line? 
Who gets a soul? See, I think this story doesn't deny our divinity, or it just denies our exclusive divinity. All of life is sacred. This this will blow your mind. If nothing has up till now, this will do it. We now know life has gone from a single-celled being. The first life form appeared 3.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> I think we should honor this first life form, by, by the way, in some way. Nobody has actually given, it's like we have a name for the first uh, hominid and, you know, Lucy and mitochondrial Eve. And what about the first living being? I suggest we call, call it Uno. <laughs> and maybe we could put little statues of Uno in plazas and, and civic centers around it. It's not a very distinctive looking uh, being, but show some respect, some props. So life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with 100 to 200 trillion cells. And inside each of our cells, which are very, very small things, like many millionths of a pinhead large, inside each one of them is a little drop of seawater. Interesting. And inside that little drop of seawater, along with all sorts of other little mechanisms and things, is two yards of DNA. DNA is the thinnest molecule known, a couple atoms wide, wrapped millions of times around itself. So two yards of DNA inside each of your 100 to 200 trillion cells. If you stretch your DNA out end to end, it would go around the planet several million times. 126 billion miles of DNA inside each of us. All that information, all the lessons life has ever learned, it's all stamped inside of you, inside of each of your cells. The history of all life is contained inside. J.B.S. Haldane, a a famous scientist, a woman said uh, to him after a lecture, even given the billions of years of evolution, I simply cannot believe it is possible to go from a single cell to a complex human body with trillions of cells organized into such an intricate being. And he replied, but madam, you did it yourself and it only took you nine months. Yeah. There's something strange and wondrous going on here. I think we're really lucky. We not only get the Dharma, we get the wisdom traditions of all cultures available to us. We also get the scientific revolution that is revealing so much about 
our past, our history, who we are, and revealing the complexity and the wonder of this world we live in. And when, when you do your practice, you know, and your, your mind gets quiet and your heart gets open, it, it's fun to hear about the world and its oddness and its beauty and its... I mean, we can appreciate it so much more. E.O. Wilson says, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. Why? What, what's going on here? I have, I have an answer for you. I, don't, I wouldn't want to leave you without an answer. And it's here somewhere. Here it is. The crow's nose. Why do we exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why did consciousness happen? Why is there suffering and death? We keep asking these questions that begin with why. And everywhere we go in the world, the crows are there, strutting around on the street or gazing down on us from the wires and branches, repeating the answer over and over again. Because! (laughs) Because! I want you to remember that when you hear them, trying to help you out. Well, thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. I I had a good time. Um, Stay with your practice now. Should I say something deep and meaningful too? No, that's enough. Okay. We will now have a walking period. Enjoy the night air.